Welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today is Thursday, December 14th, day 69 to the war with Hamas. Amanda Borchel Dan here with our senior analyst, Chaviv Retegur. Hi, Chaviv, and happy Hanukkah. Hello, happy Hanukkah, everybody. Chaviv has spent the past 10 days in the United States speaking with and to American Jewry, so we're going to hear what he reports back. This and more when we're back. The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality. They make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. The IDF announced the name of another soldier who has fallen in Gaza, bringing the death toll of the ground operation up to 116 as of this morning. There are also ongoing intensive operations being carried out in the West Bank, where the PA Health Ministry claims two were killed in Jenin alone last night. Today, U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan will arrive for meetings with the Prime Minister, President, and Defense Minister, and the War Cabinet. So, Khabib, let's turn to the United States. The U.S. House passed a resolution condemning controversial testimony last week by the presidents of Harvard, the University of Pennsylvania, and MIT on campus anti-Semitism, where these three presidents refused to clearly say whether a call for a genocide of Jews would violate the school's policies on harassment and hate speech. This has been so confusing here in Israel, and as I've been lighting Hanukkah candles with friends and family, it inevitably comes up in every single conversation how these presidents could so utterly, completely calmly state this in front of cameras and in front of politicians. How did the universities get to this state? That's a great question. What's, I think, horrifying to me isn't the defense of free speech, the radical defense of free speech. In other words, even the right to say horrific, terrible, objectionable things is part of free speech. That's a fantastic and fascinating and important argument. If you can't say terrible things as part of free speech, then what does it matter if ultimately, you know, you can say unobjectionable things, right? But what was really, I think, caught a lot of people, made a lot of people very angry, and I think also made me very, really lose a lot of respect for these leaders of of the most elite universities in America and in the world, is that they have been policing speech for years. 
Since roughly 2015-2016, it has been extremely difficult on campus to actually say objectionable things about topics that are deemed by America, uh, by American liberal societies, certainly by universities, um, untouchable, not okay, illegitimate, immoral. There was one example posted online about Harvard's response to fat shaming on campus. Um, the, the slightly heavier built among us uh, might be, I'm speaking about myself, I am not attempting to make fun of anybody else, might be sympathetic to crackdowns on fat shaming on campus. But they don't come and talk to us about radical free speech. That is not a policy of Harvard when it comes to other minorities. It is not a policy of Harvard when it comes to any of the ideologies that are now fashionable on campus. And it is absolutely a policy of Harvard for the Jews. And so what we learned in that testimony wasn't about President Gay's commitment to free speech on the Harvard campus. What we learned was that Jews are not included in the groups that that university will absolutely, unquestionably, and immediately curtail free speech to protect. And and so it really was, you know, it wasn't about genocide of Jews. That wasn't what the topic was. That was a very tendentious way to phrase the question. But it, it was absolutely about removing the Jews from the circle of protection, and they did it, and they announced it. They all but actually said it explicitly. They lawyered up. They prepared for this testimony. They knew what they were going to say. They expected a question like that. And all they could say, instead of, instead of really using this moment on national television, on international television, to make a statement about what a university should be at a time like this, at a time where profound divides, at a time where the bloody war on everybody's TikTok account, at a time when a university has a social function and needs to fulfill it, and we desperately need them to fulfill it. We have students screaming things they don't understand about a history they have not learned on these very campuses. Instead of talking about free speech deeply and seriously, instead of talking about what needs to happen, they lawyered up, protected themselves, said meaningless gobbledygook to Congress and to the, and to the world, and showed us that the Jews are not included. And, and I think that the response has been absolutely appropriate. You know, it made me think of a conversation that was being had in the Jewish community about, I don't know, also 13, 15 years ago in which all of a sudden all these very woke liberal Jews started saying that they're not white. And I looked at myself and I said, well, I'm, I'm actually more of a shade of pink. But it was so confounding to me, this whole conversation. And now I'm kind of connecting the dots and seeing how even back then they felt like, hey, I need the protection of being a person of color. And now we're seeing it play out just live on TV. Do you think this is connected? You know, I don't want to tread too deeply into the American culture war. It's easy for me to say yes, and it's easy for us Israelis and us Jews to look at uh, American the American left is the best the best term I heard applied to it is developing a taxonomy of humans. It is now whether or not you are innately one thing or innately biologically belong to another group is now going to decide a great deal about your career, your thoughts, your you know your politics, where uh, how America should treat you. It's um it's it it feels maybe because the Jews are excluded, it feels that way to the Jews. I don't know, um, like a re-racialization of everything, and it isn't just a re-racialization. It isn't just that 
America's given up on Dr. King's, you know, dream of a colorblind society, or certain parts of liberal America, certainly the prevalent ones on campus has. It's now, it feels as though this is a kind of religious um, mental world in which these new racialized categories and this new taxonomy of human beings has to now be applied to everything. Because it, it does... It does feel it has this this texture, this 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 emotional resonance of a religious fervor, of a religious vision, and so now they look at the Middle East and they see exactly that, and they look everywhere, everywhere on Earth. The only thing they can see is their new taxonomy of humans, their oppressor oppressed, all this really old ideas, these old Marxist ideas and Frankfurt School ideas, just ancient, ancient ideas, but they're all now applied to America's racial experience and now taken by this activist impulse and being applied to everything everywhere. I don't know if President Claudine Gay of Harvard or the uh, other two presidents who were with her um, at that hearing share this ideology, share this fervor. Uh, they certainly feel they need to protect themselves from it, and 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 we saw that. And the, And again, the Jews are on the outside of it, and so what could the Jews make of it? Why should the Jews respect it? Jews in America don't fit the oppressor-oppressed dichotomy because they are safe. They are influential. In some ways, some Jews are powerful. There's some very wealthy Jews in America. Not all of them. There are also Jews under the federal poverty line. People don't think about them much, but they do exist, and there are quite a few of them. But nevertheless, there are powerful Jews. At the same time, they're desperately vulnerable. They actually really need America to be the liberal promise that it that it has claimed to be for the last two centuries, or they are not rescued from Jewish history and all of the vicissitudes and violence of Jewish history. So Jews feel vulnerable, but are influential and powerful. Where do they fit? Do they not need protection? Can they be stepped on? Can they be abused on campus? Can they be screamed at? Is anti-Semitism not really racism because there's no power in the people in the people leveling anti-Semitism at the Jews? Well, if they're running the universities, why aren't they powerful? So all of these, there's so much ideology on campus that there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of thought. And there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of empathy anymore. Ideology, especially of this kind, crowds out empathy. And so I met American Jews who are, who are worried, who are genuinely afraid, even though they are safe, even though they do have influence, they do have agencies that protect them, etc. But nevertheless, they are, they're afraid. We're going to drill down into that after a break. I got married this Monday in the middle of a war. You are not a soldier anymore. You are 50 years old. What is the matter with you? It's like a couple of kilometers from here. Like my friend has a 4x4. Four four. Let's just go cut across the fields and go get him. Israel Stories, Wartime Diaries. Voices that try to capture slivers of life right now. And he told me, take with you a sleeping bag and a tent <laughs> and just go. I texted him on, like after I was told that he was killed. From their eyes, I was a traitor. Everybody needs their like blankie, their teddy bear, something to make them feel safe. I'm just another grandfather looking after his grandchild while his son is off at war. These children of Hamas now will be the killer of my children. I desperately wanted to talk about sex during my eulogy for Ido. Everyone has to choose to be optimistic because we don't have room for pessimism. Check out Israel Story wherever you get your podcasts.
Khabib, you're talking, and of course, I can't think uh, anything but of the Shylock speech. If you prick a Jew, does he not bleed? This is a problem that has been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. And these American Jews that you've been uh, speaking with and speaking to over the past uh, 10 days or so, they're summing up essentially what Shylock was saying right in that speech too. But what else are they saying? How are they viewing this war that's happening right now here? When I left Israel to go on this speaking tour, I felt very guilty about it because I was leaving behind family and friends and community that I'm, I have to take care of and, and I need to be part of. And I have family members right now fighting in Gaza. And it felt like a break. It felt like a vacation from everything. And I, that was there was a lot of guilt there. And then I got to America and I met American Jews and started having conversations. And I met hundreds of American Jews. And it very quickly dawned on me that I was meeting people who were more scared than the people I'd left behind. Israeli Jews are going through a much worse crisis, a much more dramatic crisis than American Jews. But Israeli Jews are absolutely convinced that they have agency, that they have control, that there are things they can do to shape their future, to deal with their threats, whether it's the military threats, Hamas, uh, Hezbollah, Iran, sort of writ large, um, social threats, you know, just you know, we have our political divides, of course, that aren't going anywhere uh, and are probably going to come back after the war. But there's so much we can do. And we have found over the course of this war, over the last uh, two months, we've found our unity and we've found our purpose. And we realize that we all understand together what, what we need to be doing. American Jews are facing a much smaller crisis, but they don't feel like they have control. They feel that vulnerability. They don't think they can shape their future. They're kind of terrified that America is slipping away from them or that America is maybe turning its back on them, and they don't know how to respond. Now, that's obviously not all American Jews. and not. Uh, there was a selection bias probably in the Jews I met. By definition, they would be the Jews who would come to hear, right, an Israeli speaker, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, but there is a difference there. And they have watched from this war uh, an awakening on the American left of a willingness not to support Palestinians, which most American Jews do, according to polls, but to support Hamas and to talk about Israel as this, this you know, majority of Jews, frankly, as something that can be done away with. And just a willingness to accept what is essentially Muslim world discourse about the Jews. And it's a Muslim world discourse about the Jews that is tinged with, you know, I know this doesn't fit the narrative, you know, in the West, and certainly not on the left in the West, but it's tinged with Islamic supremacism. And it's tinged with these ideas that the Muslim world has right up front, right in its media, in its public discourse, among politicians screaming it every day, you really have to try not to hear it, that Israel's existence is a rebellion against God, that Israel's existence is a pushing back of Islam, and that the ultimate triumph of Islam depends on Israel's destruction. This is the Iranian policy, this is the Hamas's vision, this is the vision of so much of Muslim discourse, so much of the Muslim street, so much of Muslim religious leadership. Al-Azhar University in Cairo, the preeminent religious institution of Sunni Islam, praised the October 7 massacre. They didn't praise the Palestinians for their struggle for independence. They praised the actual events of October 7th. And that has been echoed on university campuses. That has been echoed in the marches for Palestinians in Western capitals. 
And American Jews are waking up to that, and they still have no idea what to make of it, but they can't unsee it once they've seen it. And so the fear there is huge. At the same time, young American Jewry has been distancing itself from Israel, especially in the past year over the judicial overhaul uh, conflict and crisis here in Israel. But it, it seems to me, looking at American Jews from afar, that there is less of a willingness to take Israel's side regardless of the issue. Are you sensing that too? I don't know. I, I don't know what I'm sensing. There are a lot of people who say they don't support Israel. And then when you push them to the wall and you say, well, do you support Jewish self-determination? Yes. Do you support a Jewish self-determination in a state? Yes. In what sense don't you support Israel? Well, the Netanyahu government does this, that, and the other terribly wrong, I think, right? Well, I think that that sentence could be uttered by a majority of Israelis today, including some of the voters for that government. So, is that not support for Israel? Um, I, I, I don't. I don't entirely know how much of a decline in support among the young in America isn't fundamental, isn't saying somehow this polity of Jews, these six, seven million Jews who literally were the only Jews to survive in the Eastern Hemisphere of the 20th century. I mean, that is, there's statistical aberrations to that statement, but it is basically the Jewish experience of the 20th century in the Eastern Hemisphere that that shouldn't exist. Like, I, I, I don't know how many actually think that real anti-Zionism, genuine anti-Zionism, people who either don't bother because they're ignorant of history or genuinely don't care that those Jews simply would have died, maybe? What what other options were there in the 20th century? I don't know how many think that or think in those terms, and how many just think, why is Israel doing so many things we disagree with? And I'll say more than that. Israel's responsible for a lot of that uh, disquiet simply because it won't say what it wants. You know, the Israeli right, uh, the far right certainly has a vision of what happens in the West Bank, what happens to Palestinians. The far left has a vision. And 80% of the middle of Israel are just generally confused. Peace processes keep ending in terrible waves of violence. Lack of peace processes keep ending in terrible waves of violence. Most Israelis I know just don't think they have an option. They don't think there is some lever they can pull, right, in some kind of imagined referendum where there would just be a solution to the Israeli-Palestinian clash. Um, and because they don't think it, they don't talk about it, they don't say it, and they don't, right? But the Palestinian problem does need to be answered. Israel doesn't say anything to Palestinians about a horizon, about the future, and it doesn't say anything about to these Jews about a future on the horizon. So, as long as Israel doesn't have a vision, or six competing visions, but have a discourse about it, and I deeply, I mean, I, I literally teach why Israelis gave up on the Palestinian issue and don't have answers, but they still don't have those answers, and that is something very frustrating to a lot of people overseas. So, I don't, I don't know, you know, in a sense, um, in a sense, I, there's absolutely measurably um, anger at Israel that's rising, um, op opposition or, or disfavor of Israel that's rising. But all of it could be cleaned up real fast if Israel suddenly has answers, if there is some kind of a, a peace horizon of some kind. I can't even imagine what it would be or how we would get there politically. I'm not saying, you know, or whether there's a Palestinian side that's capable of delivering or anything like that. I am absolutely not saying that any of that is in place. I'm just saying I don't think it's fundamental. I think it's it's something that just depends on people genuinely disagreeing with the current politics of Israel. Khaviv, lots to think about as usual. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Amanda.
Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Please check out another installment tomorrow. This episode has been produced by The Podwaves. If you have a comment about this or other episodes, please drop us an email at podcast at timesofisrael.com. Until tomorrow, Shalom. Shalom.